0: Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 125 of the National Security Law Podcast. It's Tuesday morning, June 18th, 2019. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek.
1: It is day 169 without a Senate-confirmed Secretary of Defense, and that's not changing anytime soon. It's not soon.
0: getting any closer, is it, my friend? Well, as
1: we As we sat down to record this podcast, President Trump... You know, who who clearly likes breaking news, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, so President Trump tweeted that acting Secretary of Defense Pat Shanahan is withdrawing from consideration. I actually don't even think his name was ever formally sent to the Hill. Well, there was some
0: question about that. Yes. I, he, I think he himself announced that it was, but then there were people uh, kind of talking to journalists about how, well, we've not received it. Right. Something around Something a weird. couple of weeks ago – Hit the skids right there and now withdrawn. Yep, to, to spend more,
1: to, for, you know, for that, that old chestnut to spend more time with his family.
0: Okay, so wait, so is he going to also cease to be performing the role of the acting? Is he leaving the Pentagon altogether? That's, so, that's a good question. When you have an acting Sec Def who was the Deputy Sec Def, uh, do we have an Acting Deputy Sec Def? There's an Acting Deputy Secretary of Defense, but I don't believe, but,
1: but the DOD Succession Statute doesn't actually mandate that he. You know, the, the, all the DOD statute could be said to require is in the event of a vacancy that the de- deputy becomes acting secretary. Beyond that, we're in Federal Vacancies Reform Act. Okay, land.
0: so um, I hate to jump right into substance, but we're right on this. Uh, can you give me a, a quick sense of federal vacancy reform? I can't believe, by the way, what a sustaining member that ridiculous statute has become on this show. We keep having to talk about it. Federal Vacancies Reform Act, who is going to, if, if Shanahan like literally left the building today. Yeah. And I, and I assume, by the way, that what will happen is they'll, they'll do something to try to queue up a succession before he actually. It was Trump's down. second tweet.
1: So Trump's oh. second tweet.
0: <laughs> Asking you shall receive. I thank Pat for his outstanding
1: service and will be naming Secretary of the Army Mark Esper to be the new acting Secretary of Defense. I know Mark and have no doubt he will do a fantastic job. Okay, so from a federal vacancies reform act, it is kosher. Co- as, 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 as the second most nerdy person I know on the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, I would never hold a candle to Ann O'Connell. Uh-uh. Um, <laughs> right? Um, I, will, I can officially decree this a proper invocation of the Federal Vacancies Reform Act because uh, Secretary Esper, I believe, is Senate confirmed, and so falls under the go. auspices of
0: yep. 3345A2. Secretary Esper, the Secretary of Defense, how many Americans know the, the acting name? Secretary of Defense? Yeah, no, Excuse me. Yes, rather, rather significant distinction. Or at least he used to be. Um, what else can we talk about on this show? I, hey, thank you for President Trump for giving us news right off the top. It's actually we didn't
1: have. I mean, there's there's more to say. I think about Iran because of some of the things that yeah. happened on the Sunday shows. Yeah, we
0: should keep up with the Iran story. So By the we'll way, my favorite
1: comment on the Sunday shows was from Mitch McConnell saying that if if um, uh, if DC and Puerto Rico are granted statehood. Um, that will be full bore socialism. To, uh, which, to which I, I say, I to, to which I say, um, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Full bore <laughs> socialism.
0: <laughs> well, that's I do not I don't. I don't know about the specific role of statehood for Puerto Rico and DC in that. In I, socialism. I, 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 take I, a stand, Bobby. It is not
1: – socialism has nothing – like increasing the democratic representation hey, of don't, people who live in the Don't
0: Aaron Burmey Hamilton-style take <laughs> a stand. I'm simply saying I was actually trying to agree with you there that oh, okay. I don't see what bringing statehood to Puerto Rico or Washington, D.C. does in terms of – I assume his argument is that that will ensure somehow through the electoral college that we get uh, Liz More Ward, Democrats. Bernie Sanders or – well, you know, let, let's let's not deny Bernie Sanders his claim to be a social democrat who who does have a, a version of socialism that is his core identity and platform. That's fine. So I take it that what McConnell is saying, well, there's there's many versions of socialism, but he would be, I think, the first to say he is he represents uh, the effort to in, in entrench one particular version of it. And I guess McConnell is saying that you would get that more likely to get that result in this country if those. Uh, those territories became uh, states. Isn't that basically what it is? Yeah, I think that's right. But it's still it's still preposterous. I, I guess I don't know. It, it sounds like it's a prediction that may or not. Bear out if, if Listen, what he's I, if what he's saying is this increases the chances we get Bernie Sanders as president that I doesn't mean, seem preposterous no okay fine but if but if but you know maybe maybe democracy is more
1: important than you know politics I mean like you know the, the the notion that we're going to oppose allowing every person who lives in this country every citizen who lives in this country representation in
0: Congress because we're worried that you know the people might choose someone we don't like no right I, if, if your point is that we shouldn't allow the the anticipated outcome come to decide this question. Um, I, I think I'm much more sympathetic. Um, OK, so back to national security. We've got the <laughs> Iran topic. Uh, we have got some military commissions activities to report, as always. It's been a little quiet, I would say, over the past couple of months in the aftermath of, of the, the Spathpalooza. But now we're, we're moving forward, sort of. Or, or are we moving backwards, Steve? Um, you've got some news to report there. Uh,
1: there's a weird new filing by the government in this Shiri that I just don't understand
0: okay that is uh, as classic a Milcom topic as yeah, they get um, what else do we have under the Hey, we're gonna we're gonna touch base with the Supreme Court we really don't have any uh, national security activity coming out of the Supreme Court but there's just been some recent developments and we'll we'll say a few words uh, I feel like ever since you know first Mondays went away like that I think all of the rest of us in podcast land legal professor podcast land have felt a little obligation to just say a little bit more about what the court's up to um, so we'll perform that duty. Uh, and then there's, there's been some stuff on the cybersecurity side. We've got a bill that's reintroduced now, uh, a bipartisan uh, private sector hackback and active cyber defense uh, measures act it's beloved for its its name the ACDC act and uh, Tom Graves it's uh, back in black it's back in black back in black it's uh, some think it puts us on the highway to hell others just want to have a drink on me there's lots we can say about it we will say it we'll try to minimize the ACDC puns we'll kind of give the highlights from there um, and then I think we should say a little bit about the New York Times story from Nicole Perlroth and, and David uh, Sanger about cybercom uh, allegedly putting implants uh in the russian grid uh, in response to the russians accessing our grid and there's there's some legal questions to flag there as well is it treason uh (laughs) ask the president the president thinks that they shouldn't have written the article apparently um it's pretty funny how quickly he jumped on that one so we'll do all that and then a little bit of frivolity and we don't have a specific frivolity topic we're casting about then we're going to say a little bit about some of the books we're reading and uh, perhaps a little bit about what the lakers are up to for a little sports ball sound good Sounds good. Okay, where shall we begin? Do you want to start with Iran? Yeah. Um, maybe Do you want to talk a bit about these attacks against these tankers. Well, and let's let's talk about the yeah. So for weeks on the show, we've been talking about the Persian Gulf of Tonkin scenario. We've been talking about how the ongoing debate about whether the AUMFs of 2001 or 2002 can be construed to already authorize uh, any form of use of force against the Iranians. Uh, whether that's really the main debate you and I have, I think took the position several shows back in the Persian Gulf of Tonkin episode that seems much more likely that what we would have in, in part because the the politics and diplomacy also kind of demand it and the policy uh, calls for it uh, what you'd have instead would be a precipitating event that leads to some sort of self-defense or rescue type justification more of a classic article 2 type theory the same sort of, the same sorts of things that of course gave us the Gulf of Tonkin. Um, incident originally and the War Powers Resolution later on. And so now we've had um, a pair of foreign flagged vessels uh, that were attacked. Yeah, I think it was the Gulf, of, the Gulf of Oman, not the Persian Gulf of Tonkin. So we, we our, our little play on words didn't quite work. Um, the United States has loudly attributed these attacks to the Iranians. Um, got some video, including video showing a a boat pulling up and and detaching a mine and making off the mine off the above waterline spot on the hull of one of the vessels. Uh, what do you make of this, Steve? Are, are we already there? Is it you know all hell can now break loose or what?
1: I sure hope not. I mean, so I don't want to I don't want to diminish or or downplay the significance of if it is the Iranian government Iran attacking you know, neutral shipping on international waters. I mean, there's that's clearly an international dispute. That's clearly a crisis. It's clearly a problem. Causus belli? I, you know, I, I, it seems to me that we have to be careful about the US government's authority to participate in protecting neutral shipping, right? And whether that kind of attack is a provocation that allows us to then use force against Iran. Those to me are different questions. So the,
0: yeah, it's good to separate the policy Question from the from the legal question. Let's let's ask this question. So, with Libya back in 2011, the Obama administration uh, intervenes w- without congressional authorization. Intervenes on an Article Two theory of uh, national interest being at stake, and the mode of intervention falling short of the constitutional threshold of war. And the War Powers Resolution threshold of hostilities, on the theory that if it's just air power and other things that don't involve sustained ground force commitments, etc., where where uh, where the magnitude and nature of what the U.S. is doing is, is uh, not to that level, then neither the War Powers Resolution nor Article nor the Declare War. Uh, responsibilities of Congress are implicated, a very controversial claim the Obama administration made. Uh, the Obama administration emphasized that part of what was going on here was the humanitarian intervention aspects, but also the support for international peace and security. In that case, uh, with the fig leaf or the cover of a Security Council resolution that did authorize some degree of, uh, of intervention, although I think it's fair to say that the interventions that ultimately occurred, um, I think a lot of people felt, and I think it's only fair to say, at, at least greatly stretched the scope of the Security Council's authorization. Um, this isn't that because we don't have Security Council activity at this point. So we might ask first, if the Security Council were to authorize some amount of use of force to protect uh, international waters, protect shipping through international waters, that would bring this, I think, quite close, depending on what the United States then did. But it would certainly bring this within the scope of the Libya precedent, I think. Uh, As a matter of international law. If we were not doing regime change but were instead um, protecting the shipping, maybe you know, carrying out armed attacks yeah. in the, the Straits of Hormuz or elsewhere to protect shipping um, – but, but, I mean, is this an administration that has to
1: date been really sort of focused on arguments for collective uses of force under U.N. Security Council resolutions? Well, right. So,
0: so, let's assume, so I don't think we're necessarily likely to get such a resolution, although I really don't have any sense of where – China and Russia are in this, but I assume they would play spoiler. Certainly, uh, it's possible. So assume no resolution so it's not precisely on point with Libya. With this administration, I would think, and I think we've seen examples of this in some of the discussions about using force in limited instances, say, the chemical uh, weapons used by the Assad regime, I I would imagine they might say that, look, Article 2 anyways. And remember, the Attorney General, Bill Barr, has a very robust conception Going back to his time in the George H.W. Bush administration, he's on the record, uh, describing his robust conception of the scope of war powers the president can wield unilaterally. So I think that we'd likely see the Justice Department take the position advising the president. They didn't have to have further authorization from Congress, even even if we don't construe the AOMFs as applicable here, that if there is a need to protect international shipping and the global economy and the U.S. economy from disruption of the energy markets through this sort of thing— I think they would take that ball and run with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I so so uh, t- Senator Tom Cotton was on. I think f- uh, I'm gonna, I am I want to say face the morning. So I like <laughs> blend <laughs> Fa- face, face the, the press. Morning. That's a good uh, Fa- collective. Face the press in the morning. An amalgam show. Seriously. Um, Face the Nation? I don't know. Anyway. Um, it's on it's, a Sunday morning show. Yes. Talking about the president's constitutional authority to use force in response to these attacks. And I just want to say two things. First, this is the same Tom Cotton who gave a speech a couple of years ago at the Federal Society about President Obama's anti-constitutional agenda where one of his prime examples was Libya. Oh, was it? Oh, yeah. Ooh, awkward. Um, well, you know, who cares about consistency anymore? Um, but two, I, I actually, I I have a much easier time buying the argument that any authority to use force in response to these episodes derives from international law than the argument that it derives from Article 2, right? That that if the relevant actions were taken, right? If, if we saw the right stakeholders at the international level pushing back, you know, because Article 2, Yes, there is scattershot case law about a duty to rescue right under Article 2 if it's Americans who are in, who are at harm
0: in these contexts. I, def, I I certainly I would call it stronger than scattershot. Or at least I think it's fairly well established that there I think it's okay. quite established Article 2 gives you a older proportional capacity to rescue citizens I, and Scattershot may immediate. not be the adjective I mean, but but yeah. oldish,
1: right? I mean like we're talking like Mitchell versus Harmony, right? Fleming versus Page. Uh if you want court rulings,
0: right? Yeah, you got to go back to some some earlier I'm cases. sorry.
1: I don't mean to really, listen. I'm not yeah. trying to relegate the duty of rescue, right? Right. Because I point, assume you're going to draw the distinction here, because we're not talking about us. We're not vessels. rescuing
0: any. We're not rescuing
1: Americans, right? And, and and indeed, we're not even talking about rescue, right? I mean, this is this is not yeah. hostage taking. No, this, this is protection of property and commerce. That's right. Protection of someone else's property in someone else's commerce on international waters. And listen, if your theory is that that is within Article Two, that is a, you know, that would cover a lot beyond what we're seeing in the Gulf of Oman.
0: So my view is that if what's going on, it, let's assume that there is, I, I'm actually fairly persuaded that Iran did do this, but maybe they didn't. If there emerges a pattern, if, we, if we're if we going back to sort of the tanker wars, right, and Iran is, in fact, doing its best to periodically uh, take out international shipping, then I think that does open under Article 2 a proportional degree. Of of force to protect uh, the international waters and the free flow of shipping. I think there's a really strong national interest there. I think this is stronger, frankly, than some of the things we saw, such as the national interest at stake in Libya back in 2011. Totally. Um, and I think I think whereas you would put, as you just said, more weight on whether there's uh, sort of proper UN Charter authorization. You'd put more weight on that, I think, than I would, it seems. Um, But I think as long as what they're doing is proportional to the attack and basically if it turns into a replay of the tanker wars where the U.S. Navy and maybe other, you know, CENTCOM more generally are protecting shipping and occasionally using force against the Iranians uh, to achieve that end but not going further such as regime change or, you know, outright invasion, I think that's within Article 2. I actually don't even think that's that much of a stretch, but I agree that it's it's a almost a category mistake to talk in terms of the uh, the rescue authority. I think that's that's yeah. not what we're talking about here. Um, oh, the drumbeat, man, it's 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 getting louder. The problem the problem is that it's it's not. There's there's a temptation to view this as as sort of the the Bolton agenda, right? <laughs> um, and that therefore that it's all sort of being manufactured. But the Iranians do have a part to play here, and they are. They are, unfortunately, at least to some extent, seemingly playing that part and then bringing us closer. Um, Part of what's fascinating, though, to kind of get away from the the legal aspects, but maybe not so much because it really is at the heart of Article 2, it's really not clear that President Trump is on board with this beating of the drums. In fact, he described the tanker incident as really minor, dismissed it as unimportant, and really kind of poured cold water on the idea that this is a lit fuse, getting this over the hump towards actually direct uh, military engagement. And... I think that's very consistent with what we with what we know, which is that for all his aggression on all these other dimensions, when it comes to overseas deployments, uh, you know, he'll talk a big game, but he's actually as his long been characterized as somewhat of an isolationist or a or at least a a. a sort of a strict realist in the sense of not believing that the United States can actually affect these types of world events through the overt use of heavy footprint military power and has been reluctant to see us do that and has, has wanted to pull back militarily in some places. This really could be a place where Trump is actually acting as the break himself. Imagine that. I know. All right, but it's uh, it just shows the complexity of the real events as opposed to the caricatures. And the drift of war power, right? Because,
1: I mean, I would think that whatever one thought the the sort of bare minimum of Article 2 authorities were, if I were a member of Congress who aggressively supported the notion of the United States taking belligerent action in this context, I might, heaven to Betsy, think about introducing legislation to expressly authorize such belligerent action. Try to
0: corner the, try to kind of shame the president somehow, or politically, or box him into actually having to use the authority, or
1: actually take you know take seriously your
0: institutional and constitutional obligation as a duly elected legislator. But be careful what you ask for when the uh, when the Tom Cotton Act uh, to uh, direct the use of force to topple your no, no, regime no. comes I, through. I,
1: I think I have been clear to the point of a broken record about this. I would far prefer undesirable legislation. no legislation that simply drifts and allows for the attrition of war power, right, from from the you know from the from Congress to the executive branch.
0: Hey, lucky you, you get a little bit of both. Worst of both worlds. <laughs> the worst of both
1: worlds. Yay! <laughs> I mean episode title. Episode title. There I mean, you go. I mean, what else is true about the Trump administration besides, like, in so many respects, it's the worst of both worlds? Um,
0: well, you know, maybe your silver lining is maybe the president in this case is acting as a break on a march towards war with Iran, and you can you can at least if, uh, listen if he is, enjoy that if he is, I'll be the first person to
1: say more power to him. But you know. Have some control over your administration, man, if
0: that's true. Well, which raises the interesting question. Does any of this have anything to do with Shanahan withdrawing?
1: So I don't think so. I mean, so as as you have been doing your usual erudite discussion and I've been my usual sort of scatterbrained uh, interlocutor, um, I've been reading the Twitter. And apparently this is actually all about the continuing fallout of this ugly episode involving Shanahan and I believe his ex-wife some time ago. Um, that's what's being reported anyway Wow and so there was just some sense that as more and more, of news was coming it's out
0: like there's like a classic confirmation skeletons in the closet deal hundred percent whoa wow.
1: and, that, and that and that some of this was actually a result of the FBI's vetting investigation yeah details of which may or may not have been shared with members of the Senate
0: Armed Services Committee wow that is some serious stuff well so, yeah that's this whole situation sounds like it's increasingly unfortunate listen I
1: I, mean, I don't I don't know enough to say about the the specifics of the Shanahan of affair I will just say that 169 days is way
0: too fragile Long to be without a Senate well, no, to, to tie it into the confirmation separation of powers issues. So, if there is some disqualifying past skeleton, of course, we don't know anything personally about it. But if there is something like that, this is this is why you have the confirmation process and why you have the background search, and background investigation, and why if it turns out someone has to withdraw, maybe you do want the system to not simply circumvent all of that by permanently having uh, acting figures instead of people actually have to go through this process. Well. Um, Turning uh, across the waters and zooming speaking around about, the speaking globe. Speaking of military things, I don't understand the military commissions. There's a filing that got under your skin. Believe it or not, I, I know who could who <laughs> could believe such a thing. All right, so so what's going on? We have a, a spath-related ruling. What Are, what is happening? Not a here? ruling. So so there is um, the.
1: We should start by saying because I think we mentioned this very briefly in a prior episode. Just so everyone's clear, the government has now formally abandoned um, any opportunity to challenge or appeal. The D.C. Circuit's right. April 16th, I think, right. ruling in Nishiri. So years of
0: SPATH rulings blown up. And no further uh, appellate mechanism for reinstating them. Right. So Nishiri's got to reset the clock. Right. The We're, mandate the time, has issued in the We have a hot time machine situation going on there. All right. Um, so there is a fight going on
1: between Brigadier General Baker, who is the chief defense counsel, and the new military commission uh, convening authority, um, over efforts to have the Military Commission convening authority detail a new, quote, learned counsel, unquote, to Nishiri's case. Um, they've actually, the civilian Baker has found someone. Um, Anthony Natale, uh, Natale, I think it's Natale, it might be Natale, I hope I'm not butchering that, Okay. Um, who's currently a, a supervisory federal public defender um, in, so- in South Florida who has capital experience. Okay. capital qualified counsel. This Checks all sounds useful, good, Right. We're done, right? So <laughs> before the D.C. Circuit's decision in al the convening authority denied the request on the ground that there was no need for a learned counsel because there still was one in the form of Rick Kamen. Cameron, right, one of the lawyers who had been excused by General Baker, leading to the Ted layer dip and the Spaff yeah. Michigas and the blah,
0: blah, 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 blah. If you've got someone who's qualified and wants to do it, yeah. why try to force it to be someone who does not want to do it? And indeed, who has What's a pretty good legal that?
1: argument that they've been properly and lawfully released, right, from their obligation. Right. Anyway, so the last exchange between um, – Baker and the convening authority had been on April 10th when the convening authority had rejected Baker's request. Six days later, the DC Circuit, uh, and the convening authority's whole argument was that uh, currently binding precedent, right, settled beyond her ability to dispute. That Cameron was still technically on the case. So it was sort of a like, look, I'd like to let you go, but I can't. My hands are tied here. You got to stay on. Yeah, I mean, it's not written that way, but that's sort of yeah. the gist. Okay. Um, six days later, the DC circuit says, nope, your hands are untied, right? Because all these rulings, including the CMCR rulings, are all now gone. Um, and so, not surprisingly, B- Baker now says, okay. So now let. So let, now let us let do him it. Go, yeah. And the convening authority said, um, yeah you know we'll think about it so the so bake, uh, Baker not Baker so Nashiri's lawyers have filed in the military commission a motion to abate the proceedings um, again. until the Learning Council issues resolved yeah fair which hopefully will be soon because now that then now that the government's dropped their nishiri appeal possibility right. presumably even the convening authority can say oh yeah you've got this person who wants yeah. to be the, the learned council we all want to
0: move forward let's do go. this swap let's move along right
1: the government is opposing why? So what? <laughs> what is
0: the point? Even if they have some technicality to raise, so the government why? filed
1: a, the government filed a response yesterday to the motion to abate proceedings. Right, that says the motion is not ripe. Um, the convening authority has denied the request because Kamen still hasn't been recu released to date. Neither this commission nor any court has released Mister Kamen. They're trying to re-litigate. They're literally trying to re-litigate. So
0: go beneath the surface here. Is there some advantage to the government's case by somehow trying to keep the status quo as opposed to allowing in the swap?
1: I don't I, I I literally don't understand what the government's doing here. Like other than fighting,
0: Just for, fighting some for fighting for fighting sake is what it feels like. Or fighting
1: like. for some principle I don't understand. Yeah, if I it's mean, fighting
0: for principle, that could be defensible. So so I, I mean so if
1: Mark Martins were here, right, what he might say is we still believe that Spath's substantive analysis of why it was up to him and not Baker to release Cameron was correct. Okay. Right. And here's and I should and I should say, I mean, the government says um, in light of the changed circumstances, Mr. Kamen originally applied to withdraw. <laughs> That's a euphemism. Yes. The government will not oppose Mr. Kamen's release by the commission if the accused consents. So the government's saying, like, okay. like you guys the is, right way. What should happen is um, Kamen should now reappear before the military commission, request to be relieved, hope. Given the government's non opposition, mm. that the judge consents, and then the convening authority
0: can appoint a new learned counsel. Right. So this and it's is. Just r- like, okay, but that I, I at least think that that's not crazy, and they think that there are other issues that could come up with this all question cr- of authority. No, this is all
1: cr- So, first of all, you have no guarantee that the new judge is actually going to release Kamen. Okay, but well, right? why wouldn't they? Uh, I don't know, but also if you're a Camin and you think you were properly released in the first place, sure. why no, would you? Why would you participate in a proceeding that you believe is beyond the military jurisdiction? I, I, to- I
0: totally get it, but I, I just think that what you're what you've highlighted for me is that the office of the prosecutor is taking the position that the the Milcom judge has to make the call. Cameron would like the benefit of Baker making the call. They do need to work that issue but what, out.
1: No, no, but they don't though. What if the government just says what if the government just says um without conceding okay, yeah. that we think Hammond was properly dismissed so by So preserving that issue for right, future fights? Right, without conceding that we think Cammon was properly dismissed by Baker and reserving our right to argue in a future case that, that, that future lawyers can only be released given the need to get this case back on track. There you go. I like your proposed solution. This, I would endorse you know, that. Without endorsing the legal theory here, we, you know, we we, we do not oppose this motion by defense counsel. We do not oppose... Reserve the, all arguments. Right. We do not oppose the convening authority moving ahead with defense, with Baker's request to appoint a new detail, like, a new learned counsel. Like, what the... All you're doing is turning the gears and, yep. like, you know, creating more appealable... Like, what? You want to go back? I mean, Let's well, just creating new layers for the dip. Well, the irony is, so we talked when we talked about Nishiri in detail about how the D.C. Circuit um, then uh, didn't reach the merits of the Spears and Eliotis petition that was argued the same day because they believed it was mooted by vacating all Spath's rulings. Well, now the government is actually taking advantage of that because if the D.C. Circuit had gone ahead and said, and oh, by the way, Baker's right, Spath is wrong,
0: we wouldn't Wouldn't be be here. here. Yeah, so in light of your... uh, proposed solution that does seem like a reasonable way to proceed it's a shame it's not happening that well, way well it's a reasonable way to proceed which is exactly why it's not what the not military are going to do alright speaking of things that are Just let it go man so reasonable let it go turning to a different court what is happening at the Supreme Court lately no.
1: Ah, so so it's late June, which means I get my annual uh, 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 weekly trips up to Washington to help see. Are, are you going to, like,
0: stand on the steps of the court and, like, f- thumb through the slip opinions? So you're not right to on the steps. Out?
1: You're actually in front of the court out on First Street, where it's quite warm. Um, so
0: actually, the way I do it— Is this going to be, like, Anchorman? Like, you're there with your crew, and then right next to you is your rival crew? Oh, it's totally—they're, from... they're, they're, like, shoulder to shoulder. All right, so who are, like—who are your opposite numbers? Do you have some sort of—you know, I'm kind of picturing— uh, I don't My, know. You Some other professor. So I'm, not, a, the I'm, camera not, next I'm not the
1: reporter, right? I'm, yeah. the, I'm You're the, the color commentator. I'm the, I'm the color commentator. The only the only real obvious um um comparator is our friend Kate Shaw at Cardozo uh-huh. Law School. Kate is ABC's. Kate is to ABC what I am to CNN. Although she's better at it. Um, <laughs> That's and, awesome. And so so Kate and I often you know this is this is when we get to catch up. Um, but I actually we do a weird thing. So just for folks who haven't been with us for a prior June. Uh, episode. So one of my jobs for CNN is I help them sort of break down what the Supreme Court's doing in real time. And for the last couple of major decision days of the term, they like to have me actually at the court because oftentimes there's a lot. Um, So I I think I talked about this last year. I actually usually park Bobby in the cafeteria. Um, And the virtues of the cafeteria are um, you're not standing outside in the blazing sun. Uh I can actually read my laptop. Um, as opposed to like standing and holding it, right? Um, And I'm close to the press room without being in the press room, because I'm not allowed in the press room because I don't have a hard pass. Um, and so I'm sort of in between the camera position outside and the press room. Man, this is some serious inside baseball. Seriously,
0: and are you are you calling in your commentary? Yeah, and-
1: so we're, there's a conference call. It just yeah. we just have a run conference call where it's the um, Ariane De Vogue, my boss, who's in the press room. Um, the producers back in Washington and Atlanta. A couple of the lawyers. I mean, it's it's quite a it's quite a. This is how the call. sausage is made. I love it. It really is. So anyway, uh, I say all this just to say. So there was some I think fairly big news yesterday. Um, Although the bigger news, I think, is still to come this Thursday and then next week um, because the court's going to be done by the end of next week with this term. So to me, the the sort of the the two biggest things that happened yesterday, um, first were in Gamble, the big double jeopardy case. The court, I think, not surprisingly to me, um, reaffirmed the separate sovereigns doctrine, which basically Mm -hmm. says um, notwithstanding the double jeopardy clause, it's not a violation of double jeopardy if the state and federal government's Separately try the same person for the same offense because they're not the same sovereign?
0: Yeah, we talked about that previously. It has a connection to our show because, it? of course, it, it looms uh, in the background of some of the Trump related investigations, mm-hmm. um, in part because the federal, the, the president's pardon power does not extend to state criminal liability. So the uh, separate sovereigns doctrine, uh, to me, that's the sort of thing that was just like kind of well settled black letter law. Uh, when I was in school, and I was a little surprised that over time, had become something that was in question again. I'm not surprised that the court, in fact, did not change what I took to be pretty well-settled authority there. Yeah, no, I'm not either. Um, you know, I think it's interesting. That, so
1: Justice Thomas had been one of the two justices, along with Justice Ginsburg, who had asked the court in a 2016 case, I think it was Puerto Rico versus Sanchez-Valle, To to not to overrule the separate, but to at least look again, right? To think about it, to take a future case where they could actually think about the doctrine. And Thomas says, All right, I've thought about it and I actually think it's right. Yeah,
0: okay. Um,
1: And Ginsburg dissents. Um, in wait for you know, there's a lot I like about Ginsburg's dissent. I'm just not sure, like especially her policy concerns. I'm just not sure that the cost that the text is so is so <laughs> not so
0: sure the Constitution reflects all her policy concerns.
1: Well, you know, but that's I mean, heaven forbid. I actually think maybe sometimes the Constitution's not. Just no, I'm about so policy. pleased. Oh. Um, <laughs> then there was Gorsuch's dissent, which is sort of a. Uh, he has some weird views about the relationship between the states and the federal government that I think are not necessarily shared by any of the other eight justices. Uh,
0: do tell. Was it sort of like an anti-federalist Luther Martin kind of take? No, uh, no, it was not a
1: strong. It was not a strong anti-federalist position. It was a very unitarian position. Um, Interesting. In his argument for why, the, yeah, of course, if he's not dissenting, then you would you would
0: actually have a sort of a, a blended view,
1: right? And and you know, I mean, I I for one, I mean you know, no fan of Justice Kennedy, but his concurrence in the Term Limits case where he talks about how the founders split the atom of sovereignty. Like, I actually think that's a really useful mm-hmm. metaphor because I think that's part of why the separate sovereigns doctrine, although it seems unfair, um, is not inconsistent with the letter of the... Now, the the real answer, I think, and this is why I think the, all the Trump hysteria about yesterday's decision is, is overstated, is let the states figure it out, right? Let each state decide whether as a matter of state law they're going to ban successive prosecutions for overlapping conduct. And New York has such a law, or at least, it, you know, it may not for much longer, but it has for now, um, a law that bans um, state prosecutions that would otherwise violate double jeopardy if there's a prior federal prosecution for the same conduct. That's why I don't think this will have that big of an effect on Trumplandia.
0: Interesting laboratory of states issue there.
1: And then one last thing I want to say yeah. just about Gamble um, I don't want to sort of get this is not the place I think for a long debate over stare decisis but I think Justice Thomas has a very strongly worded um, discussion in his opinion about how he thinks the court applies too high and too subjective a standard in deciding when to follow and when to not follow precedent and that he would simplify it down to whether in the view of the judge deciding the case the precedent is in his words demonstrably erroneous um I have some strong feelings about that. You know, I think
0: a lot of people have strong feelings about that. Not really a national security topic. Well, no, but so we talked about this a little bit uh, in the hall before getting started. And I was a little surprised to see, both in in our conversation and and just glimpses of what others were saying online, just quite how excited people got. Of course, I I think for a lot of people that the natural, the human thing to do is look at that and think, all right, what does that mean for a precedent that matters to me? This is building intellectual groundwork to challenge something that... Someone like you know like Roe and Casey. uh, Some people don't want to see overturned. Um, But setting out those those cash outs, setting aside those cash outs, and just asking is is it perhaps is. One possibility is he's setting out a, a very edgy position, that this really winnows down starry decisis far more narrowly than it's uh, conventionally been understood to, to reach. Um, or maybe an alternative view, maybe it's just a more direct and honest, almost crass way of saying, look, what goes on is when the judge really thinks it was wrong to begin with, the judge is not going to vote to stay with it, even though it was totally wrong. At least not not if, if anything important turns on it. Um, and so we had a little back and forth where I was kind of – I was a little bit drawn in my initial reaction to this topic towards the, hey, he's just, say- he's just saying very bluntly, yeah. very bluntly uh, what in fact actually happens. But you disagree, I think.
1: I, I do disagree. And, and I disagree in two respects, right? I mean I certainly think there are viable claims of inconsistency with regard to how justices of all stripes mm-hmm. um, have applied the doctrine of decisis historically. And I think there's no question that justices will often massage the doctrine um, to allow them to say a case they don't like should therefore be overruled. I, I would find ways to reduce, the, like, to me, the, the answer to that, right, is not to say we should stop pretending that it's anything other than, yeah. you know, power. Power. Yeah. Because um, that's basically what, what – what, you know, the most
0: charitable reading of Thomas is that's what he's saying,
1: right? I, I would
0: power leavened by um, a good faith, intellectually honest right. adherence to your own assessment of what, what the Constitution actually Based means. on your own
1: intellectual commitments, which presumably yeah. are why you were confirmed by the Senate.
0: Right. Um, and, and I guess
1: my response is I'm not quite willing to abandon the project, right? That, that like it's not enough to me to say – the historical practice has been uneven, and therefore we should stop trying, I think there is important value to the court. And, and I want to say, and to me, this is not about Roe, right? Because I you know, I understand that that's the the way everyone's sure. framing this. To me, this is about the legitimacy of
0: the court in the long term um, as an academic exercise, which is, you know. Uh, I, and I share that concern because I agree that the, the more you, you indulge doctrinal shifts that embrace sort of, look, just... Let's call a spade a spade. Get rid of the window dressing. This is about do five of us think the right. following? That invites everyone to further believe, even more believe that, that all it's that all matters just is political balance right. of power. And,
1: and my concern is, you know, I, I'm the as I try to tell my federal court students, no one should ever let you, no one should ever think that the courts are apolitical. But. It's very important that they be perceived as not purely partisan. Yeah. And, and that's the line I worry about blurring, which is why, to me, the test for stare decisis should at least require some nod Toward factors beyond the views of five of the current justices, right? That that if if everything rises and falls on what five of the current justices think is right, then precedent is empty at at least at the Supreme Court. There's still the, the there's still the vertical value
0: of precedent in binding lower courts. Sure. Yeah. No, we're talking about the at the highest court. Would you would you say then that there's an affinity, uh, an interestingly, kind of a, an opposite political valence affinity between this sort of uh, desire to preserve to the extent possible objective indicia of either a precedent working or not working in practice as a as a way of understanding the doctrine of stare decisis and sort of what we think of as the, sort of the Scalia view about substantive due process yeah. and ha- trying to hinge the substantive protections of the due process clauses to objective indicators of tradition and precedent in both cases to avoid having it simply be a five vote preferential judgment. I,
1: I do think there are similarities there. I will just say that in the case of Scalia's effort and the court's effort in Glucksburg, right, to objective. Objectivize? I don't mean objectify, right? Right, but I'm with you. Um, uh, Substantive due process. I do think in that context, there is the separate concern I have that if we admit, as a matter of originalism, that the court's modern substantive due process doctrine is doing much of the work that the drafters of the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment meant for that provision to do.
0: Thank you, Slaughterhouse. Right.
1: Then I think there's – I have less concern about the project than Scalia does, right, because I think it's just using a different clause for the to, same— To
0: restore— To restore yeah.
1: the—what whatever even Justice Thomas would say, right, is the clear intent of the drafters of the Constitution's text. But leaving that aside, so, so I just—you know, I'm worried about a world where we give up the ghost of even trying to tie overruling precedent to anything beyond I've got five votes because otherwise it's just further politicizing the court and, you know— I gotta say, for my own personal political preferences, like delegitimizing the court right now may not be the worst thing, but no, it's for the, the long game. But uh, the and you know the scholar in me, like I mean, I just I I, I can't abide you know such sort of. Um, uncareful delegitimization. I appreciate that very much. I concur. Um anyway, it, it's just Thomas and I understand and, you know, no one else joined him, but it's just if this is a harbinger of things to come.
0: Well I think we are gonna hear a lot about Starry Decisis yes. and the, the ins and outs of when you do and don't Stick to your guns. Yes, uh, and I think we might hear years. more in the next ten days. Yeah, we might well exactly. Um, so the court's next sitting is Thursday. They still got, I
1: think, by I eighteen opinions to hand down, um, and they've only got Thursday, Monday, and maybe one or two more days next week. Um, also, just one other quick note before we get off the the court. Um, on somewhat national security related news, um, the court finally seems to be moving to make some decision about what to do about DACA. Um, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which as immigration law we think sort of fits in the ambit of our show. Close enough. Um, The court had been sitting on, uh, I think it was three or four petitions in the DACA cases for months um, and had just turned down the government's request to expedite a new petition in a four-circuit case. And yet all of a sudden they were back on the the conference list, um, meaning they were discussed at conference last week, um, and they weren't acted on on Monday. Which suggests that there might be either a cert grant coming, or perhaps or a descent from, from the, the yeah. denial, or perhaps um, something in the census case will give the court a basis for a so-called GVR order, granting, vacating, and remanding, and basically saying we'll reconsider this the, the, in light of this new precedent. Yeah, it's like a okay, interesting. All right, watch that space. We'll uh, continue with our Supreme Court coverage because it's going to be uh, the next ten days are going to be as 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 the kids say lit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's what they say about Scotus. Um, Lit Scotus, you can be, you can establish a new podcast just on that. I, I don't, ha- I don't, I barely have time for this podcast. Fair enough. Uh, so let's wrap this one quickly because I, I do have to, I got to get to the airport. But before we go, I want to say something about two bits of cybersecurity news. First, the active cyber defense. Uh, Certainty Act, ACDC Act. This is a bill that we've talked about in the show before. In the last Congress, Representative Tom Graves in Georgia had introduced it. Uh, this One thing I want to highlight about it is before he introduced the bill, he actually publicly re- released a discussion draft, which was really cool because a lot of us engaged on that. And then when he finally, in the last Congress, introduced a regular bill... Uh, It reflected a lot of the input that various people had publicly engaged on. I thought that was very cool, nice model of notice and comment potential legislation. Love to see more of that on these topics. In any event, um, the bill didn't get out of committee last uh, Congress, but it's back now. Uh, We'll see if it ever goes anywhere. The, The two moving parts to be mindful of it, it really does two separate things. The first one, I think, is relatively uncontroversial. In both cases, what's going on is is concerns about the uh, deterrent effect of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act on those who are themselves victims of a hack where there are certain steps they want to take either at the moment or while the hacking's in progress or perhaps in anticipation of it that would either arguably or definitely would involve out-of-network activities on someone else's computers, either the computer of the attacker, or frankly, more likely, the intermediary systems through which the attack was routed. And and of course, if you go into any of those systems without authorization, you may be the victim, but you're still gaining unauthorized access to those systems that presents potential civil and criminal liability in the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And so with with some famous uh, potential exceptions you occasionally hear about, for the most part, Corporate counsel tell their clients or individual clients uh, don't hack back, and even when it comes to things like, well, can I do something that's analogous to the bank putting a sort of a die pack or a GPS tracker into the bag of money, such that the when pack. you know, like old-fashioned yeah, 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 yeah. Uh when the bank robbers come in and they make off with the bag of money with the dollar sign on the outside, and then the bag explodes, yeah, and it, you know, it, it does something out of network, as as it were, so beaconing. That is uh, making sure that there's some tempting file in your network that has some executable code built into it, such that if and when somebody either moves it or or uh, opens it in some other system or copies it over some other system, it's gonna start phoning home. And at that point, the beacon can be kind of innocuous, just saying like, here's where I am, this is, what I, this is what I can tell you about my current location. It could be more aggressive, it could do that, plus looking around, say, hey, by the way, here's a snapshot of everything I can detect in the system around me. You, you could go further. Um, the first part of the ACDC Act is to clarify that um, what I would characterize as simple beacons, phone home beacons with location, that if what you did was you put that in your own system and some jerk stole it and copied it and put it elsewhere, that's okay. It won't be a Computer Fraud and Abuse Act violation in that case. Um, the statute would be construed as not to reach that circumstance. I like think that's that just seems like a smart idea. Uh, it's not clear the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act forbids this, this to begin with, but plenty of people think it might, and that creates a deterrent effect towards doing something that looks like a good defensive measure. The controversy has to do with the second and separate part of the act, which goes further and calls for some explicit uh, unauthorized accessing in order to, you know, Break into someone else's system to try to do the attribution, uh, or perhaps even to take action that would terminate some ongoing attack. That opens up the the can of worms, as it were. And there's famously a debate about whether this this is too risky. It's going to get. It's going to lead to escalation. It's going to cause problems. It'll lead to harm to third parties, etc. Lots of policy back and forth on that. I'm not going to rehash it here. I'll simply note that there is a requirement in the statute. That the statute would, or the bill rather, would require the party who's going to engage in one of these active cyber defense measures, they've got to first send a heads up to the FBI uh, Joint Cyber Task Force. It's not that FBI has to say yes, but they do have to give the heads up, and FBI is encouraged to then respond with advice how to how to do this better, how to do this uh, more clearly within the bounds of the rules, and and that's you know that about sums it up. Uh, who knows if this is going anywhere? It's really hard to say. Lastly, uh, New York Times, David Sanger, Nicole Perloth had a great story over the weekend uh, describing allegations or or reporting that Cybercom has actually penetrated the Russian grid in various unspecified ways, the implication being that we could turn off the lights somewhere, somehow. It's not clear if this is meant to be sort of a... Uh, a claim that we can do it across the country, or it seems more likely. Like a one-off. One-offs in narrow specific systems as to particular objectives. So we really don't have enough facts to truly judge it. But among other things, it excited some commentary about like, well, wait a minute, what's the international law? Not only that, it excited some tweets. Oh, yeah, the the president was wound The president up. himself waited. The, 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 he says the Times is failing, etc. but also says this is treason. So it's, you know. It's, <laughs> he it's, does that just to make you mad. No, you know what, though? I mean, this is especially dumb on his part
1: because, you know, calling it treason is, is as someone pointed out, I don't remember who it was, like, you know. You're only you're only actually raising the visibility and the profile
0: of the claim. Well, Streisand effect, right? But yes. also, it's seemingly confirming.
1: That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So it's like you know we, we I, I've mentioned this before, right? That that during the World War II, when the Chicago Tribune published. That yeah. the that we had beaten, act like it didn't happen. That's a, yeah. The Roosevelt administration, right, was like you know wanted to like send them all to the you know to the gallows, um, and was persuaded, I think, by Biddle, right, that then Attorney General, right, yeah. Francis Biddle, um, that um, the worst thing they could do was give it any was yeah, give draw any, attention to, yeah, yeah was draw yeah. attention to it. Well, so this good job, got, Mr. President. <laughs> well, this
0: one got plenty of attention. So two things I want to highlight from it. One, um, there were questions people were circulating about. What does this mean from an international law perspective? Uh, I think this is the right way to understand it. Uh, First, there are those, there's a sharp disagreement in international law circles about whether the general principle of sovereignty. Um, that is a layer of protection below the level of the clear UN charter-based protection from uses of forces in international affairs, and indeed uh, below the levels of certain other coercive actions that might not be uses of force, but nonetheless are coercive enough to clearly, at least in the eyes of most observers, violate some actionable principle or rule of international law, whether there's a looser, broader baseline level of sovereignty that clearly is a general principle, but according to some, is also an actionable rule of international law such that it's an internationally wrongful act to violate it. Some would say that getting into implanting malware in, in someone's grid, some would say that that's an internationally wrongful act because of the general principle of sovereignty. Uh, it's not clear the U.S. government accepts that there is such a general principle of sovereignty that works as a rule. In that way, as opposed to just a general principle floating floating around out there uh, with less rule-like effect. But even if you thought that there is such a rule and you think that implanting malware in the electric grid violates that principle, which is something else you could debate about, um, the critical part of the story, which is something that people that follow this area already knew, was that the Russians have been getting into our grid and getting into our energy distribution systems in similar fashion for quite some time. And hence, if you think that this is an internationally wrongful act, then what you have is first, the Russians engaging in an internationally wrongful act. And then from that point of view, I would argue, and did argue at Lawfare, that this would, at worst, constitute a a proportional countermeasure by the United States uh, would not itself be problematic because of what the Russians had done. So, So there is that. Now, having said all that, Steve, I'm gonna have to run in a second. I think we should get ourselves some frivolity before we go because we have to tide ourselves. We gotta
1: gotta be frivolous for at least a minute, or more frivolous. It's, more it's all frivolous. relative. It's all, it is all relative. Do we even have an episode title? Uh, worst
0: of both worlds. Oh yeah, worst yeah. of both worlds. I think it's good,
1: um, as opposed to uh, uh, the best of both worlds, which was right the, the 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 season four Star Trek: The Next Generation cliffhanger.
0: Wow, that two part show. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah that's that was right. a good one actually. It was. Um, that actually. I don't remember the specifics, but I recall thinking that. Do not particular... remember the the Borg? Well, you, you just got to remind me which one it was. Is this
1: lacutus This is lacutus and and the Borg, and the, the the Borg heading for Earth to destroy Earth. And, yeah, 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 yeah no, And lacutus right, and right. Borg. No, that's good. That's Captain good. Riker, right? That's,
0: that's some quality for volume. You know, we may have to uh, set up and maybe get some listeners in on this. Like, let's pick some episodes we're going to rewatch. Oh, Star Trek! Next I could do Generation. off the top of my head. I know, top five I episodes. know you can, but I'm not prepared. and I want to be prepared for this. So I'll, I'll just put this out there
1: now, and then you can you can come up, you can you okay. can react.
0: Nomi- let's have a, let's nominate uh, episodes for rewatching and review. Star Trek: Next Generation. Right. We can deal with other from uh, five to one.
1: Uh, sure. Okay. okay. Give it to me. So four and five are best of both worlds. Parts one and two. Okay. Um. The, okay. the season four cliffhanger. Right. The Borg. Okay. Um. Let's see. Um. Three. Um. Uh-oh, I may be one, one short. All right, three, right. three, three. this is going to be controversial because I don't know that everyone loves this episode, but I really do. The Pegasus okay. um, from season seven. Okay. Um, two um, is many people's favorite TNG episode and my second favorite, Inner Light. Okay. Um, when Picard, um, when the probe and he thinks he's someone else, he thinks he's this person on this other planet and he lives the whole life. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and my favorite episode of all time, season three, Yesterday's Enterprise.
0: Oh, that's good.
1: The, the Enterprise C. So, so not the finale doesn't make it. No, no. Uh, all good things must come to an no. end. No, I mean I, 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 I am not one of those who hated the finale, but I don't yeah. put it in the top five. I don't put yeah. it in the pantheon. Yeah. But by the way, my my sister in law's husband, Matt Myra, who is, as I said before, is much more talented and creative than I, um, is co host of Star Trek: The Next Conversation. Um, which is this podcast that goes back through every episode of The Next Generation and sort of breaks it down.
0: Oof. Okay. The temptation will be to actually like draft off of their efforts, but I'm not. Let's let's start with your list. Listeners, uh, if you're fans, uh, nominate some others. Yeah. We'll rack them and stack them, and then we'll start watching them. And, and I'll tell them. you
1: why my five are still better. <laughs> Present your <laughs> argument. Um, that actually wasn't our plan for Volody. We were going to talk. No, about, that's good. But um, I, I want to say a quick word about summer reading because um, someone had tweeted us to ask us. Um, just off the top of my head, as I think I said before, my pleasure reading is always like judicial biography or judicial history. I know. Um, <laughs> and I think I mentioned the last time we talked about this that I just read Joan Biskupik's new book about Chief Justice Roberts called The Chief. Um, Evan Thomas's, I think really cool book about Justice O'Connor called First. Um, which, by the way, I'm reviewing for Jotwell next month. Oh. Um, two new additions to my reading list for my short to co- soon-to-come vacation. Um, so the first is Stephen Budiansky's Oliver Wendell Holmes, A Life in War, Law, and Ideas. I am very excited about this. Oh, that actually this. sounds great. Right? I may
0: actually follow suit on that. Um,
1: and then the second is less biography and more history. It's Michael Babellian, Battle for the Marble Palace, Abe Fortas, Earl Warren, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, and the Forging of the Modern Supreme Court. Basically, Dang. how right at the end of the Johnson administration, like the that that year from like the summer of sixty eight to the yeah. summer of sixty nine, was so cataclysmic from the perspective of the the shape and scope and and the shape and composition of the current Supreme Court.
0: Oh, that's good. Okay, well, you've disrupted my plans because some of that actually sounded appealing to me. <laughs> um, I just picked up a copy. I've not yet started in on Neil Stevenson's uh, Fall or Dodge in Hell, which I'm pretty excited Mm. about love me some neil stevenson yeah it's hard it's hard not to like that And he was just here or at least he's coming here i think tomorrow um i think he's gonna have a book people appearance and i'm gonna be in uh san francisco so that's really driving me nuts so that's too bad. What else? Oh, I. you know what? After I had a little Game of Thrones withdrawal, so you know what I did? Hmm. I went and pulled book one off the shelf and reread it the other day. And how was that? Uh, it was so interesting to go back. I mean, it's been a really long time since I read the original volume of Game of Thrones. Um, it moves. The pace is... Way way quicker and TV script like than I remember, uh-huh. and, and I think different than the later volumes where right. he just starts right. really wallowing in. Yeah, every by volume detail. three, I was like, uh, it starts slowing down quite a bit. You did a scorecard, um, so that was that was really cool. Second observation: the number of things that. If the TV shows Denouement is predictive of where the book series is meant to go and was always meant to go, yeah. the number of heavy-handed foreshadowings that are now clear in retrospect—it's unbelievable. It's like every single conversation, like in the first part of the book, it's like, "Oh, well, that's foreshadowing this, or that's anticipating that. That's just telling you something you need to know." I mean, it was—it was—it was quite right there on the face of it. Uh, especially some of the the, the Jon Snow stuff, but also some of the White Walker, others stuff. Um, All this has happened before. All this will happen again. Exactly. So I'm I'm now kind of trying to decide, like, do I want to reread the whole series? I think I might because it's it's so fun and it reads so quick. I think that that enthusiasm will wane as I get into volumes later in the series when he really does start, just keeps adding new stuff. The story, you feel the storyboard beginning to branch off too far away into the horizontals. In any event, um, plenty to read between now and then. Seriously, and, and, and lots and, of Star Trek episodes to watch. And on my flight to San Francisco this afternoon, I will watch some more season two Westworld, so I continue to get there. You go. So we can soon do a Westworld season two recap.
1: Because I mean, it. it, it
0: all, it's all, good. It, I'm completely hooked now. It I mean, all breaks loose. I appreciate you pulling me back into it.
1: And, and wait till you see the season three teaser. Once you actually are all the way through season two.
0: Oh, I can't wait! So, all right, good.
1: Um, this actually might be like our shortest episode in a long time, but yes. hey, you got a plane to play in the catch. Yes. So, all right, uh, he is at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Uh, we will be back, I think, sometime next week, and then we've got a July 4th hiatus coming. So, you know, if you're going to make some news in the national security world, do it soon <laughs> um, and send us for topics because, as you can see, we're sort of fishing here. Yes. Um, stay safe out there. Adios.